0: You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast. Recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program.
1: I have always seen current events with this sort of historical dimension. I've always been interested in the past behind the now. We're staggering blindly towards what end we know not. And we're dragging this history behind us like gauzy roots of a plant. Half the time we're not even paying attention to what's behind us. We sure don't know where we're going. That's part of being human, kind of fun and dangerous and spooky. But it's deeply what we are.
2: People really want to live in Maine. Maine is the filter that makes my job so rewarding and really in a guilty way very easy because I feel oftentimes like the lucky dope that gets to turn the lens on what's happening out there. We have a circle, a community that has risen up around these magazines to support them. We have readers who say it's theirs. That means the world to me. It's incredibly gratifying to be doing this work, absolutely yes.
0: The Dr. Lisa radio hour and podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepherd Financial.
3: This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast, show number 99, Feeding the Soul, airing for the first time on Sunday, August 4th, 2013. Our guests today include Peter Behrens, author of The Law of Dreams and The O'Briens, and Susan Grisanti, editor-in-chief of Maine Magazine and Maine Home & Design Magazine. What is it that we are hungering for? My grandmother's parents came to the United States during one of Ireland's great famines. They settled in Boston along with many other immigrants from that country. Their family, my family, experienced very real poverty associated with very real physical hunger they journeyed to a new land so that they might feed themselves. Many of us find ourselves journeying for that same reason. We wander purposefully so that we may feed our souls. It could be argued that in the absence of famine, true hunger is obsolete, but the desire for nourishment takes many forms. Vietnamese monk Thich Nhat Hanh suggests that Americans are like hungry ghosts, seeking spiritual nourishment in a land of relative abundance. Sometimes we don't realize how spiritually starved we are. We seek to feed our bodies rather than our ravenous souls. Once we recognize that our souls are in need of replenishment, we can feed ourselves with that which we actually need. Our life's journey becomes a joyful excursion, celebrating the bounty of our surroundings, rather than an attempt to escape the scarcity we once heard knocking at our door, like the scarcity of the Irish famine experienced by my great-grandparents and so many others like them before and since. Today on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour, we speak with novelist Peter Behrens, whose books The Law of Dreams and The O'Briens describe the journeys taken by individuals whose families were impacted by the Irish famines of the last century. We also discuss journeys taken by the staff of Maine Magazine over the course of 48 hours with Maine Magazine and Maine Home Design Editor-in-Chief Susan Grassanti. What is it that you are hungering for, and how can you feed your soul? We hope that this show will give you food for thought. Thank you for joining us. It's always my great pleasure to meet the people who write the books that I love to read. And last fall, I read the books, The O'Briens the, and The Law of Dreams. And I said, oh my goodness, I have to meet this guy. And I realized he lives in Maine. How fortunate am I? So today we have in our studio, Peter Behrens, who is the author of The O'Briens, The Law of Dreams, and also of Night Driving. Thank you for coming in and talking to us today. Oh,
1: thank you for having me, Lisa. It's fun to do something in Maine, not have to travel.
3: Yeah, well, you've been all over the place. Most recently, I think you spent some time in the Netherlands.
1: Yeah, I had a fellowship at the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Study, which sounds very tedious, but it was actually fabulous. Six months to just work and write, and the whole family lived over there. It was great. And
3: what were, what's your advanced study in?
1: I, you know, I was kind of the token artiste there. Everyone else was in academic. Uh, working on very scholarly projects, but they usually bring in one or two fiction writers to kind of stir things up a little bit, or a poet, or a translator, and I just happened to be the fiction writer they invited. It was lucky for me because I'm working on a book right now that's set in Europe, and I really needed to be breathing European air and looking at European light, and it was very fortuitous, so we all just packed up uh, last August and moved over there. It was great.
3: As I was out running this morning and I was thinking about the time I would spend talking with you today, I I was thinking of the word peripatetic. You have this very interesting peripatetic sort of air about you and of the books that you write.
1: Hmm. Well, it's funny. I've just been kind of having a, you know, a kind of whining, sobbing, breakdown week over moving around too much, you know, (laughs) like just too much. Like I just can't bear opening another suitcase or you know, going somewhere else or thinking about going somewhere else. So we've been overloading and it's been piling on a little too much lately and we're now going to cool down. And I love those periods when I can suddenly think to myself, gosh, you know, I have not been on a main for five months. I love that. That's a good time and it's a good time for work. And I'm hoping, and I'm superstitious enough to knock wood, that, that, that we're entering one of those phases right now.
3: Well, it's a good time to be entering one of those phases given yeah. the weather.
1: <coughs> exactly, yeah. You don't want to be doing that in November. But yeah, it's, uh, it's it, you know, Maine is a, is a great place to come home to.
3: And this is where your wife, Basha Burwell, is also from.
1: Yeah, Basha's deeply from uh, southern Maine. She grew up in, in Portland and Yarmouth and Cumberland. Families from South Freeport. My family are Montrealers. I grew up in Montreal. We all spent our summers in Maine, going back a couple of generations in my family. So Maine, within my family, always felt like a sort of home, too.
3: And I think you and I have some sort of familial similarities in that my family was from Canada, came down to work in the mills. Not quite as glamorous as spending the summers in Maine because we just came down and they they worked in Biddeford. But there is still that interesting... Oh, that's such
1: a... I'm so fascinated with that world. I was just speaking of that when I was up in the Brunswick at the Spoke Festival last week, how Maine is, is really ethnically a Canadian state so largely. I mean, and I think... If we joined Canada, we would no longer be in the same country as New Hampshire. We'd get an hour extra daylight and we'd have health care, right? So it's like, sounds like a plan as far as I'm concerned. You know, Maine is, uh, is ethnically deeply Canadian. I mean, many people came down from Quebec and from Lacadie to work in the textile mill. So the river valleys are very largely French Canadian in Maine. And in the coast, when you talk to anybody in the fishing industry, if you're a Canadian, you will always be told right away that, oh, my grandmother's from Prince Edward Island or Newfoundland, or Nova Scotia. You know, the Maritimes' influence on the coast is really, really strong. So it always feels, you know, pretty homey in that way. So we got that ethnic thing going, you're right.
3: Yes, and the publisher of Maine Magazine, uh, Kevin Thomas, is from Presque Isle, and his family actually had a farm in New Brunswick. Yeah, there you go. So we've got the sort of border crossers.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Maine, one of the reasons I moved back to Maine was I wanted to be near Montreal, my hometown, which I, I kind of write about and has a kind of radiance for me. But I also wanted to be... Uh, the, the the experience of borders and the meaning of borders is something powerful to me, so it was useful to be in Maine. Close, but not there.
3: In your book, The Law of Dreams, this idea of borders— actually, in both of your books, The Law of Dreams and The O'Briens, the idea of borders being somewhat fluid is very present. You start out the book talking about a child who becomes part of the Bog Boys mm-hmm. in The Law of Dreams. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about that, that character, and, and why did you start with this, with a child, essentially?
1: The boy? Well, I, I not only started with him, I kind of stayed with him. I mean, he is that story. The whole book is, other than the pro- prologue, which is a couple of pages at the beginning, <clears throat> that whole story is told from the point of view, sort of from behind the eyes and inside the head of a 15-year-old boy, who doesn't know a lot about the world. I mean, he hardly knows he lives in a country called Ireland until he leaves it. When he's going to America, he's not entirely sure what or where America is. The things He's not stupid. He's just grown up in a very remote set of circumstances in in, in County Clare in the 1840s. And he doesn't know a lot. What he does know, he knows deeply. He knows all about um, animals. He knows all about horses. He knows all about how ground and light Work. he's very sensually inclined, I mean, he can really smell a landscape. Uh, But I wanted to try to see that world of Ireland's catastrophe uh, through the eyes of someone who didn't know they were living in history, you know, and who wasn't tugging you through and giving you little history lessons along the way, but was just living through it. I mean, he had no idea he was living in the Irish famine, capital I, capital F. He was just living through his life. And I I wanted to stay within that that point of view. And I think I pretty much did most of the way.
3: So you have a family that lived in Montreal, that came to Montreal. But... At least a large part of your family is Irish.
1: That's right. M- my family are the o- my Montreal family are the O'Briens. My mom was Frankie O'Brien. Uh, I've actually used a lot of their names in the novel, The O'Briens: The Story of the Law of Dreams. The first novel is essentially the story of this boy, Fergus O'Brien, coming out of the famine and ending up in Montreal. He's really my great great grandfather, of whom I know very little, other than that he was and O'Brien and came out of County Clare during the famine era. I basically had to invent his story because none of it survived. Like, hardly anyone has famine, family stories. I mean, I think that was an experience of such poverty and struggle and shame and horror that, um, and those people were so poor that no things came down and few stories came down. I invented it. The second book, The O'Briens, is, is a fiction deeply but it's, it's also, to a considerable degree, based on my own family, the O'Briens. Uh, they're the inspiration for some of the characters. And there are events in kind of family lore, family mythology, that, that become significant events within the book, which I have to repeat is also a novel. You know, I made a lot of it up
3: which you told me on the phone became easier to write once the people that were kind of connected really intimately to the story passed away.
1: Yeah. um, You know, my mother's generation, uh, you know, particularly in Canada, but I think in the United States as well, um, you know, they were private people, you know, and, uh, and there were things within the family that, you know, to them needed to stay within the family. It's tough having a writer you know a novelist in your family because you seize onto those events of which you you only know from one perspective or one dimension and you know you turn them into scenes you turn them into chapters you turn them into stories. Um, I think that's a difficult process if if you were part of the real thing you know (laughs) no one else is ever going to get it right no one else is ever going to know it the way you knew it so it wasn't a conscious thing, but I, but I realized I began writing these books as my mother and that generation began dying out. I began digging in, doing the research, not knowing where I was going, but in a way, it, I suppose it just freed me in some you know, kind of way that, that just was natural, I suppose. I didn't have to, I wasn't writing for them. And, uh, and I don't think I'm certainly not ashamed of anything I've written, and I don't think I've done anything bad. But I also respected their, you know, desire, you know, to keep things within the family.
3: My grandmother was Pearl Mary O'Brien. Who, oh, really? Yes. Oh,
1: that's <laughs> she right. A lot of Mary O'Briens, so and my aunts were Mary Far. My mom was Mary Francis, Mary Patricia, Mary Althea, Mary uh, Margaret. You know. Mary is very popular. Not too many Marys around these days. But
3: well, my mom is Mary Patricia, and she terrific. was Mary Patricia Emery. So, that's you terrific. know, it's, I Keep think it this is the way. kind of, it's the kind of thing that we hear a lot in Maine, actually, and a lot that had, my family came um, through Ireland during the second big famine to Boston, mm-hmm. Boston up to Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I felt as if I was reading the po- possibly about my own family. And I think that's the beauty of these books is they're novels, and yet... They belong to all of us.
1: Well, that's what I'd hoped. I mean, I don't think my family, as my family, should be of interest to anyone other than me and my family. To me, th- and that's why I didn't really write a memoir or a piece of history. I, I I used their experience and investigated their experience and kind of know more about their experience than maybe they did because I know about the context and stuff like that now. But I want you know, you know, it's a story that I think rings a lot of bells for a lot of people, particularly in our part of the world.
3: In The Law of Dreams, you talked about pain as being a kind of food, and mm-hmm. your main character, Fergus, talked about eating pain. Mm-hmm. It was a kind of food, made you dizzy. And this is this is the theme that runs throughout, is mm-hmm. pain, hunger, you know. It, and it's so fundamental and foundational to what we know as human beings.
1: Yeah, I think it, it really... Th- becomes part of the larger theme which is survival and he develops this notion of eating pain which is really just absorbing pain and punishment and difficulty consuming it and moving beyond it you know um and i don't know where he got that that kind of analogy or where i got it i guess but but like it was all he had in his life, he's gonna chew his way through it and still stay alive and keep going and it was gonna make him stronger, not weaker, all that he had to do to survive. And he's not quite right about that because, because it, it does in some ways make him stronger. I think too though that some of the harrowing experiences that he goes through you know, damage him and damage him permanently in some ways Uh, that he will never be able to be really open or trusting, that he will, you know, he'll have a, he'll survive, but maybe at some cost.
3: Trust is a big issue when it comes to the famines. As you were talking to me the other day, you were reminding me that there was food present in Ireland during the famines. It just was being sent off in boats to other places. And so the idea that people were living um, often on farms that their families had, you know, essentially sharecropped for generations, mm-hmm. but this food was being taken away from them and sent to other people. They weren't even valued enough. That must have created this tremendous sense of um, inability to trust those who had always been there as their farm yeah. owners.
1: Yeah, it also created, a, you know, sustaining kind of rage in, you know, that, that really fed into the forces of Irish nationalism through the 19th century. You know, the sense of that... That basic inequality. The fundamental fact of what happened in the famine was okay the potatoes went down. The potatoes went down in lots of parts of the world, in lots of parts of Northwest Europe in those years. In Belgium and Scotland people didn't starve to death. In Ireland they did and there's a complicated set of reasons why but they all finally come back to the notion of Ireland really being a captive nation and decisions on the Irish economy and the structure of land holding in Ireland were made not in Ireland, but elsewhere, you know, by people who really fundamentally did not have the interests of the Irish people closest to their hearts, (laughs) you know, colonialism, and, uh, you know, it had these these disastrous, you know, unintended but disastrous, um, you know, results in Ireland.
3: We'll return to our program in a moment. On the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast, we've long understood the important link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the subject is Tom Shepard of Shepherd Financial.
4: The first tool we used to get what we wanted was to cry. The first thing we used to make others feel good was to smile. Born into a world of complete dependence, we eventually find our voice and begin to talk about independence. Over time, we learn to do for ourselves while the support gets slowly taken away. Or, so we think. I've always been struck by the disconnect of a life that is benchmarked against time instead of experience. Our currency is not the time that goes by never to return, but instead the relationships, connections, skills, money, resources, and knowledge that builds a foundation underneath us that can't be destroyed. We may be learning to live on our own, but it should never be the goal of living alone. So if you need something, cry out. And if you have something to give, let the world know with a, with a smile. You may have many ways to trade for more value in the world, but if you're having trouble seeing it, then send us an email to info at shepherdfinancialmaine.com. Securities offered through
0: LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be.
3: You were recently asked to be on a panel that was discussing the Irish Famine. So this is something that is still very much alive in um, the culture.
1: It's very alive in Irish culture. I was made aware of that when I was in Ireland doing some research uh, a long time ago, mid-90s. And I woke up in my hotel room in Dublin, clock radio in on, and there was a story that had just come out in the Western media about a famine that had been happening in Ethiopia. The famine had been going on for quite a while, but I think the situation was that some big news media people had just gotten in there. And suddenly, and some of our listeners may remember that particular famine, it was everywhere. Horrifying images in, in magazines and on television and a lot of stories. In Ireland, I mean, in Dublin, the next morning there were kids on every corner with cans collecting money for the famine victims. The president of Ireland flew to the United Nations a few weeks later to address the United Nations on behalf of the famine victims. The whole country, you could just see famine touched a raw nerve still in Ireland, you know, and the whole country was this nervous, in this nervous Twitter about this famine, so you could see that memory is, is scored pretty deep in Irish ways of being, and, and the Irish, to their credit, you a know, large part of their foreign policy has to do with Um, you know, alleviating famine in in other parts of the world, you know, and alleviating the direst effects of of poverty. I mean, they're they're a small country, but they more than pull their weight in some of those global forums like that. It's impressive. And it's, I think, because of their own experience.
3: Famine as a notion is not new. It's been around for, well, as long as we've had people on the earth and the need to eat, which is always, and it continues I mean, we are still having problems with famine in various parts of yeah. the world. Mm-hmm. Because you've written this story, has this impacted the way that you have um, moved forward in your life and viewed current events?
1: I have always, uh, f- you know, seen current events with this sort of historical dimension. I've always been interested in the past behind the now, you know. And yes, uh, knowing what I know about Ireland... Uh you know I what here's the way it really worked was that I when I was looking at contemporary events and contemporary famines in parts of the world like East Africa um, you know or West Africa and Sierra Leone, I saw what was going on in those cultures and societies and cities and towns and countryside was probably uh, very similar to things in Ireland that would have been happening in the 1840s that weren't really noticed or written about, you know. Uh, what was happening to the kids who were... There was no social net in Ireland in the 1840s, in rural Western Ireland. What was happening to the kids of these families that were... The parents were starving to death, you know, or dying of, of dysentery, or dying uh, or, or, or just leaving everything, leaving their homes... Um, that stuff never got written about. I, I began to get a sense of what was happening when I, when, I, when I looked into, you know, the famine experiences in other parts of the world. Particularly one morning I had a, when I saw a picture of a kid in Sierra Leone walking down Main Street in a town, 11-year-old boy, African boy, wearing camo fatigues and carrying an automatic rifle over his shoulder. And I thought, oh, that's what happens when societies break down because of famine. You know, kids are, are abandoned. Kids do what they need to do to survive. Kids form gangs, kids join, kids join armies. And I thought, I know that was happening in Ireland. I know that was happening in Ireland. And I happened to read a sergeant's report from West Cork in the 1840s, one line of it. He was writing to his superiors in Dublin Castle. One line of his report stuck out. It was, lawless children are infesting the highways. And that suggested a whole, you know, hidden, unwritten about world to me that I, that I brought back to life, I think, in, in, with the Bog Boys. In the law of dreams,
3: in the law of dreams, there there is this sense that that Fergus is living through history, but he doesn't know that he's living through history. So, is this something that could be happening to us right now that we don't know the outcome? We're living through something, and we don't know what the other side is going to look like.
1: Yeah, I'd say that's about wraps up the essence of the human condition, right? It is. Yeah, we're staggering blindly towards what end? We know not, you know? (laughs) And we're dragging this history behind us, like, you know, kind of gauzy roots of a plant, you know? And uh, half the time we're not even paying attention to what's behind us. We sure don't know where we're going. Um, Yeah, that's who we are. That's who we are. Um, I think sometimes uh, by paying a little more attention to our history, we can get more of a sense of you know place ourselves a little more carefully place our time in history a little more carefully maybe perhaps sometimes even make you know as as a country as a nation as a power in a world make wiser judgments but yeah the uh, it's unavoidable it's the essence of history we're all on this blind stagger to who knows where that's kind of part of being human kind of fun and dangerous and spooky you know but it's deeply what we are
3: you have a 7 year old son you've explored your own Family history. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you are hoping you'll be leaving as a legacy for your son?
1: Well, you know, when I think about it, um, I thought, I think really, in some ways, the person I wrote those books for was Henry. You know? Um, I am an older father. My father was an older father. Um, He doesn't have a lot of any cousins. He's got extended family considerably which is really lucky and he's got great grandparents here in Maine but he's not that close to my family my family tradition and I think partly I wrote those books to tell him who he was not who he's gonna be or really who he was but at least tell him where he came from you know and I wasn't really conscious of that because I began the books before before I began the idea of Henry (laughs) But he was fortuitously born the same year that Law of Dreams, my first novel, came out. And, and that is a big part of them. And I, might, I hope I'd like to think of him reading those books and understanding that they're, they're fiction and all that. But also, you know, this is, these are the legends. This is the lore. This is the, 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 the humus soil that you come out of. Here it is, you know good or bad, here it is. You got it, kid, you know? I'm not maybe around to tell you, or I'm this grumpy 85-year-old, but but the books are there.
3: It's been a pleasure to speak with you today. There is nothing I like better than reading a good book, and specifically fiction. I must say that this is one of my greatest pleasures. I mean, there are other things, of course. Mm -hmm. Eating is good, you know? Eating is good. Eating is good, but I find myself so impacted by particularly good works of fiction. So it's really, I thank you for the work that you're doing, putting this out there into the world and also enabling people to think about things um, from the point of view of story, but also um, more globally from the point of view of history. Well, we've been speaking with Peter Behrens, who is the author of The O'Briens, The Law of Dreams and Night Driving, and who lives with his wife, Basha Burwell, and his son, Henry, here in Maine.
1: Well, thank you, Lisa. A pleasure to be here, always a pleasure to do things in Maine, particularly, it always feels like It is being home, so that just feels wonderful.
3: We and the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast hope that our listeners enjoy their own work lives to the same extent we do, and fully embrace every day. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy.
5: I have to admit, I feel very fortunate. Not only am I blessed with an incredible family that I love spending time with, but I am also passionate about my work. Helping clients with their businesses, really digging deep into their operations, their finances, and management gives me joy. It feeds me and reinforces one important life rule. If you don't love what you do, if it doesn't give you satisfaction and a sense of contribution or accomplishment, then why do you do it? find what it is that excites you and whatever you do in life or work or play do it with intensity and passion the so-called work-life balance you hear so much about won't ever be there until you find joy and happiness in your personal and work life that's called balance it's also called living your life doing what you're good at and enjoying every moment along the way i'm Marcy booth let's talk about the changes you need boothmaine.com.
0: This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of REMAX Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With REMAX Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Seabags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind, nautical-inspired pieces. Please visit the Seabags store in Portland or Freeport or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection.
3: Well, it's taken about two years to get this person to sit with me (laughs) in the studio and have a conversation about something that we both hold very dear, and that is the state of Maine. This individual is the editor-in-chief of Maine Magazine and Maine Home Design and one of the co-founders of the Maine Media Collective. So I'm glad that you're here to talk to me today about feeding the soul, because I think you and I have many shared views on the subject Thanks for coming in, Susan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. And if I didn't mention, it's Susan. This is Susan Grisanti. That's that's the editor in chief. You've been here for 14 years now.
2: Coming up on my 14th year, right? Yeah. That's right. So I moved now? here in 2000.
3: So you're a Mainer, but a Mainer by choice. Let's I'm say. I'm a Mainer by choice. Yeah. Am I a Mainer?
2: That, that that There's a whole question to that: whether I'm a Mainer or not. I feel more at home in Maine than I have in any other place that I've lived. I grew up on the West Coast um, my whole life in California. I went to school at USC, um, but I honestly feel more at home here than I have. And I lived in Seattle for a couple of years. Um, I attribute that me feeling so at home here. I was raised by Easterners, both of my parents are from upstate New York. and. Uh, Uh, Something about that, I think, being raised, even though we were in Los Angeles, we were really a little bit more of an island, all-girls Catholic schools and things like that, and really instilled with some values that I think feel, feel much more at home here in Maine.
3: Well, I was struck, I think you and I were both at a wedding last summer, and I was struck by the fact that you're a West Coaster, I'm an East Coaster. And we're both, at heart, these two Catholic girls. You know, we both go up for communion. We're both, you know, just there's something really interesting and kind of spiritual, I think, in both of our backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And I think that that feeds into the love that we both have of place and of Maine. Mm -hmm. And I've seen this in some of the journeying that I know that you've written about for 48 hours. So talk to me about what is 48 hours and what does that mean to Maine Magazine? What has that brought to the Maine Media Collective?
2: Oh, 48 hours. I mean, that is a big question, multifaceted question there. I think the first reaction that I have to what you say is about um, this whole spirituality and kind of getting out in nature. And um, so the whole idea of us, I think what we've discussed many times this kind of this need to be outside to kind of unplug and disconnect from computers and phones and things and just to ha- create a little space, a little time, a little quiet for ourselves. So the first part of my answer would have to be that I always do work in very naturally into my life and into my weekends away that we do officially and unofficially, um, some time outside. You know, whether it's winter and hiking and, you know, summer, there's all kinds of things to do. Um, and so there's a lot of uh, time in, I think, all of our trips to 48 hours that our staff is pretty connected to the outdoors. On a larger scale, just getting away for the weekend, that we really live these lives that. Um, If we can move out of this regular routine in order to, um, you and I talked about, jump in the car and from Portland in, a, in 45 minutes or less, you're in Brunswick, and to stay for the weekend and some of the really great restaurants that are there, amazing art scene that's there at the Mill, and then Bowdoin, um, and I talked about the, that town being bookended by you know, the Mill on one end and the University on the other, and uh, how lovely to be kind of in all the culture on that Main Street in between. Uh, The idea of really just enjoying the weekend and kind of Not having a schedule and following your nose and it's been super gratifying to me to have the question which was I always used to joke the number one question was where do I go and eat Um, from friends and from different readers now the question is where do I go for the weekend I'm getting that quite a bit and this idea of kind of giving people this inspiration to to get out and and jump in their car and have a really easy weekend away right within the state um, and all the different personalities we talked about this, the really luxurious inns down to the kind of rickety little um, hole-in-the-wall places, and each of them kind of having their own gift that they can give us.
3: Now, 48 hours began from something very different, where one person, who I don't believe was on staff, went out and did, a very, did an admirable job spending 48 hours in a town, came back, said this is what I did. Right. But it really progressed from there.
2: It really did. yeah. Well, I think it was inspired. And in our forty eight hours guide that we have on on the newsstands right now, we have a compilation of many of the staff 48 hours um, are written. You, you and Kevin write the opening note to that, and it was inspired
3: on the trip. I mean, you could probably, actually, would you answer that question? What we were noticing is that everybody on your staff has such a visual sense. You know, obviously, you have two magazines that you create, and some people really you know, gravitate more towards photography than others. Um, some people have more of a professional background than others, but everybody really likes to sort of see what's out there and really experience and really sort of be Part of wherever it is that they go. So it, it seemed as though it was almost inspired by Instagram in, a, in an interesting way, yeah. you know, that you have pe- the ability to sort of take not only um, a snapshot, a written snapshot, but also a visual snapshot and sort of string these all together and create something that is a little bit more inspiring, I think, in a way.
2: Absolutely right. We t- we're talking about feeding our souls. And when you think about how gratifying it is for our staff to kind of go out and have the freedom to express themselves and to share what's going on and share what they're discovering uh, with readers and to creatively express themselves through something like Instagrams, so much fun for us. Again, it's it's a real compliment to... The gorgeous professional photography that we have throughout the magazine. These are snapshots, and these are more um, of a storytelling in a different way. And I think the two really complement each other nicely.
3: And it's also what I notice is just a a sense of pride. And I know that Maine Magazine, uh, Maine Home Design, a brand company, Art Collector Maine, everybody has a real sense of uh, passion and pride. Um, Working on, we people really do believe that Maine is a wonderful place to be, and the things that we do, we mean it. Um, We go to events, we mean it. When you put together the forty-eight hours issue. And it came together within how much time? Are you talking about the first time that we did it? No, I'm talking about this issue that's sitting on my lap right now. It it literally,
2: this is going to be hard to believe, but between the two issues that we were working on, it came together in one week. Okay. Some very long hours and very dedicated staff that we have, but we pulled this one together in a very short amount of time.
3: So your 48 hours issue was created over the course of maybe three 48-hour periods, (laughs) really. But it's just as beautiful as... Any of the other magazines, Thanks, and people Lisa. were so proud of it. Yes, people really love to be able to open it up and say, "This is my picture. These are my pictures. These are my words. Um, these are the connections that I've made in the state of Maine."
2: We have twenty-one of the most exceptional people uh, on the staff, and I and you alluded to it that the, this wide-eyed curiosity. This, I think, this is a common. Um, trait that makes people successful here, that want to work here. They really do have an open heart and an open mind and are curious and open to what's going on and love to hit the streets. I mean we have competition for who's going to go on what 48 hours trip um, instead of would you spend your weekend working? Um, we've got a long list of people saying, can i can I please go? Can I go and experience these things? And I'm more than willing to take photos and document what I'm doing and come back and write it and edit it and work with it and in order to put that out there and share that. Um, that is something that absolutely does feed our soul it's not something just like putting this issue together in such a short period of time um there was a real energy about that like let's just do this let's put this guide together and let's get it out there before the summer's over let's get it out there so that people can do it in a timely way so that people can really enjoy this during their summer vacations
3: i remember reading one of the um editor's notes i guess and it was by Sophie Nelson, and it talked about her desire to sort of go out there and say, look at this, look at this, look at this. And I, and I know that this is a way that I've often felt in my life, that I want to say, you know, look at the clouds, look at the flowers, look at all of these beautiful things that are around us. And when I pick up this issue, this is really the sense that I have, that everybody who's writing for this issue is saying, you know, look at these things that I've found. And I want people to know about it because I want them to be there too. I want them to experience it. And I want them to be fed themselves. True. By the
2: way, one of my, if not my very favorite editor's notes that's ever been written for either of the magazines, that note is really special and we got a lot of feedback. Um, and people can genuinely feel Sophie's desire to share these things. It's such an addition to what we have in Maine Magazine. Um, I love that note. I think it was from our July issue. I'll have to double check that, but it's such a great ed note. That wanting to share um, is absolutely prevalent. And I think what it reflects also is people really want to live in Maine. It, you know, when you choose, I always say that the stories that we create in Maine Home and Design and Maine Magazine, Maine is the filter that makes um, my job so rewarding and really kind of, in a guilty way, very easy because I feel, oftentimes, like the lucky dope that gets to turn the lens on what's happening out there. Um, it is, it is a place that is hard enough in certain ways to make it really interesting. Like, why would you? Why do you wanna build that house here when there's climates that are easier and nicer to deal with than here, um, and a number of other reasons that um, it really makes it an interesting choice for people. There is a passion, not just in the staff of this magazine that wants to share these stories with people, but with the audience that is tied to Maine. There's something there, there's this interesting thing that makes all that we do just that much more interesting.
3: The other thing that I noticed is exactly what you've said, that because you're out there connecting with other people who choose to live in Maine, there's just this sort of heightened enthusiasm often. And there's such creative people that live here and the connections that are made. I mean, I'm constantly amazed. And I go to many events with you and see um, all of the people that you connect with. And that's another thing that that feeds your soul is these relationships that you've built up with the people in maine. And it's almost hard for me to believe that you've only lived here fourteen years mm. yeah it's a very good thing
2: I I, I I couldn't agree more. It is incredibly gratifying to meet uh, the folks that we work with i think um, I, I'm thinking also of the people that we meet on our travels. Um, short connections, long connections, we have a circle, a community that has um, kind of risen up around these magazines to support them. We have people that really take pride, uh, readers who say it's theirs. Um, That means the world to me. I I think that that has so much to do with the kind of um, energy and and success that we've had with the publications is the people that kind of rise up around it, our readers and our community. Um, It's incredibly gratifying. Uh, to be doing this work, absolutely, yes.
3: The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter.
6: One of the things that we all think about as we get older and we age is we want to make a difference in the world. We want to, we reach the calling part of our life. We start with a job, we go into a career, and then we move into our calling years. And one of the biggest things we can do is be a good steward, a good steward of the land, a good steward with your estate and your family, just be a good steward. And stewardship is something that many of my clients over the years have taught me, and I've, I've learned by example through them. I have a friend who I've worked with for a number of years, and we've sort of rebuilt her childhood village together slowly, piece by piece, starting with the community center and then the, the park in front of the town and the church. And her husband, who died several years ago, talked about stewardship and discussed stewardship and was very passionate about that. And I go through that town now and I see the trees maturing and the plantings mature and I say, wow, this is what this is what Dave meant. This is exactly what Dave meant. This is stewardship. And through their generosity they've improved the lives of many people. I'm Ted Carter and if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com.
0: We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At Orthopedic Specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendonitis, muscle and ligament tears, instability and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207-781-9077.
3: At the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we believe we are helping to build a better world with the help of many. we like to bring to you people who are examples of those building a better world in the areas of wellness, health, and fitness. To talk to you today about one of these, fitness, is Jim Greaterix, the president of Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. Here's Jim.
7: During the summer months, we all want to get out and enjoy the outdoors and all that Maine offers. At Black Bear Medical's Premier Sports Health Division, we want you to be able to take full advantage of a great Maine summer. I recently hiked Mount Katahdin and wore some of the new compression hiking socks. Anyone who has made this climb knows that it's an exhilarating but grueling climb. I was amazed that by wearing the socks and then the recovery compression socks the next day, I had little to no soreness and my legs felt fresh. My 22-year-old son, on the other hand, didn't wear the goofy-looking socks, and he was sore. These products really work, and I invite you to check them out for yourselves. I'm Jim Graderix, president of Black Bear Medical. Come on in and see our trained staff down at 275 Marginal Way and at www.blackbearmedical.com.
3: So I know that in 48 hours, it's the places that people can stay, that's discussed, the places that people can eat and what people can eat. Um, we also have people who have done rock climbing and running and biking and hiking, um, places for people to shop. Also, the the things that come up for me are um, things for people to look at art. Art becomes this really interesting and important part of 48 Hours Maine, but also in everything that is done in these magazines. Why is art such an important piece of the Maine Media Collective?
2: Well, I, I think that like so much of what I've already said since we've started talking, what's happening in Maine? And when in my answer to the question of why is art so important, the art that's happening, the contemporary people working in the contemporary art world, um, let alone the history and the legacy of, of what's happened in Maine art, um, we just, we, from the beginning, I honestly knew very, very little about art before we started Maine Home and Design in late 2006 and it was something that I just caught the bug. I stayed up till two in the morning just searching websites and on the different galleries and learning about the artists and um, it's, it's a passion and passions are what keep life interesting for us and the main art scene has um, really added so much to my life. Uh, when I go to openings, Um, I get to talk to these artists. Uh, We have the ability in Maine to go to openings and stand with these artists that are of such an extreme talent um, that we can discuss their work with them one-on-one. I do it nearly every opening. I try to go nearly every First Friday and wander around Portland or in different towns. Um, they're, They're great First Fridays. Uh, That is such a wonderful thing that I would invite all of your listeners to go and do um, to just kind of get curious and ask a little bit and then or just go and stand in front of the art and look at it. If you take I find myself like calming down when I first run into some of these openings or different shows at the museums and I have to kind of just give myself a minute in front of a piece of art and I watch it transform and have an effect on me. Um, that's one of those connections for me spiritually. I really feel like these artists kind of are messengers for us. They they challenge us, they get us to think in a really uh, nonlinear way how to feel um, channel some kind of higher meaning, whatever that is for you. And I really think that artists are among the leaders on kind of telling us where we are politically and where we are, and and this is just through the air, this feeling. Um, When you look through time, what's happening in the world, you can really document that through art. And that's really what art history is about, something that I would love to learn more and more about. Um, But we have unbelievable access here. The Colby Museum of Art is just opening up the largest physical art space with the largest collection in the state that is free seven days a week open to the public in this beautifully uh, designed and newly constructed edition that the Lunders uh, so generously um, donated 500 million-dollar collection, I believe, or 500 pieces. Um, just absolute uh, amazing transformation. You can have talk about unplugging in a short period of time. And just walking through and seeing these masterworks is one of the very enriching things in Maine to do.
3: It's easy for us to talk about places like Kennybunk, Kennebunkport, Camden, Midcoast, and those do; those places do have great people, great restaurants, great places to stay, um, but other parts of Maine do as well. And you spent time, I know, I mean, you mentioned Brunswick. That's another one that kind of already it comes to mind. But you spent time also in Bangor, and you spent time in Aroostook County. Yes. You've, you've kind of broadened your circle. Um, what kinds of things did you bring back from those other trips?
2: I love to get in the car and drive. I, I think that my life runs at a certain pace, that there's something really meditative to me about literally separating and kind of giving my time, that time, um, so I absolutely love a road trip. Uh, I took that trip to Aroostook County with my son Jack and that drive, just you know, going and watching the state change, um, just the topography of the state up there is so different than it is here, just wide open spaces. Um, Such natural beauty all around us all those different personalities all those different places are Again, I'm going to go to like these really posh Some of these beds you sink into but some of the more interesting experiences come from these more unexpected places that Really get us to kind of feel differently and think differently and come back to maybe the comforts of home
3: um, in a renewed way What do you remember most about a county?
2: The thing I remember the most were the people. Without question, uh, there is a sense of of interdependence among them. There's a sense of community. I talk about in the story going out with the groomers uh, that go out and groom the uh, snowmobiling trails. This is, you know, the huge volunteer base um, of of organization, and and then those few that that really do this work. Uh, to create... um, they know that they're bringing in people, they're bringing in tourists that come and really sustain these businesses, sustain um, the restaurants and the inns and the different places and hearing, and I was riding around in the snowcat as they're grooming them, and they brought a second groomer because they didn't want Jack left behind, and there's only this little jump seat. So I'm holding onto this little jump seat, and my then 11-year-old is holding onto his little jump seat going through these the private property that people kind of, out of the goodness of their heart, say, yes, we'll support this trail system. Um, that was really striking to me. That's something that I think I, I'll always remember.
3: The cover of your 48 Hours issue, which I believe is out now is a antique board, right? an antique automobile right antique automobile yeah with it looks like either um a surfboard or possibly a paddleboard on the top right but it all just screams adventure yeah and yet and it says your adventure awaits mm-hmm. and yet maine is also simultaneously the place where we adventure and where we lay our heads down it's a, it's an interesting thing. I mean, we have means everybody has family camps or they have these places that they've become sacred spaces almost. Mm. And somehow that comes across in the magazines. How is it that you managed to do that to simultaneously put across this notion that yes, you can adventure, but you can also go somewhere and find a sacred space?
2: Mm. Well, I think even in our adventures there's a very genuine spirit throughout the state. That I I think that there's there's this kind of win me over Maine attitude among real Mainers. There isn't this you know phony glitzy really you know I'm from Los Angeles, which is the entertainment you know world, and there's this all this big smile and the hug at the front, and maybe like I always joke about the stab in the back, at the back. Um, I would say it's really the polar opposite in Maine. I think there's just a very genuine feeling. Um, about even adventuring here. And so I think that the really the two go hand in hand, that we can be at home and really feel like there's a genuine experience, and there's adventure and fun, and then there's work. I mean, work is maybe this best way that, that I have found um, to happiness is through a little bit of discomfort. Um, and I think that that's okay. I like that. I like the way that you draw that parallel. And I think that it, we could just keep going with that. It really could be a very spiritual thing about how it isn't always, you know, about being peaceful and happy all the time. Sometimes you have to go through the birth canal to
3: get there. Susan, I'm going to end our conversation with this quote from The Law of Dreams, written by Peter Barens. Is courage just the awareness that gestures, journeys, lives have intrinsic shape and must one way or another be completed, that there is a path to be followed literally to the death. Awareness is harsh but better than being unaware, never sensing a path, better than a life of stunts, false starts, dead ends, better than the irredeemable ugliness of the half-hearted, better than feeling there is no shape to anything, there is the world knows itself. It strikes me that Really, what we're talking about and feeding the soul is, is courage. It's the courage to follow something, whatever that looks like, even if it doesn't feel that comfortable to us. And that's how we are fed.
2: Mm. Thank you for sharing that, Lisa. You gave me the chills when you read that. I think it's
3: courage and sometimes it's faith. I would absolutely agree. And I suspect people who are going to pick up not only this main magazine, 48 Hours issue, but all of the copies of Main Magazine that I know people still keep them. It's funny. You go, Main Magazine is is beloved. People keep it around forever. I, I have a sense that they're going to feel that. They're going to feel that, that there's a little bit of faith, there's a little bit of courage, a little bit of adventure. It's a very unique place we live in, and I think that you represent it well. You Thank you know. so much. Thank you. I really appreciate it. So I hope that people will take the time to um, go to your website, which is? TheMainMag.com. And also find your uh, publications, Main Magazine, Main Home Design, and all of the Eat Maine, Art Maine. Also go to the Art Collector Maine website and really learn more about feeding the soul in the way that you and everybody at the Maine Media Collective is putting forth. I've been speaking with the editor-in-chief of Maine Magazine and Maine Home Design, Susan Grassanti. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Lisa. You've been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 99. Feeding the Soul. Our guests have included Peter Behrens and Susan Grassanti. For more information on our guests, as well as their extended interviews, visit doctorlisa.org. We'd like you to join us for a few special events. The first is Lobsters on the Sound, taking place in Southwest Harbor on August 6th. Lobsters on the Sound benefits Harbor House, which serves all the people of Mount Desert Island. Every Harbor House program and activity springs from common ideas and individual contributions. With six key program areas and a roster of more than 45 health, fitness, educational, sports, community-based, and youth-focused classes and activities, Harbor House serves every age group and every economic level. For more information, visit harborhousemdi.org. The next event is the 29th annual Bike MS Great Maine Getaway out of the University of New England in Biddeford, Maine. During this two-day ride, cyclists will experience the beauty of Maine's southern coastline, including an up-close look at Walkers Point, the summer home of George H.W. Bush. This will take place on August 10th and 11th, 2013. For more information, go to nationalmssociety.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter and Pinterest. And read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog, -blog bountiful-blog.com. We do love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, hoping that you have enjoyed our Feeding the Soul show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life.
0: The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage. Ted Carter-Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street in Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiematt. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org.